what kind of things do you daydream about? Like when you don't have to think about anything at all, when your mind is free to wander, where does it wander off to? Some of us, I know, like to daydream about travel, or maybe we think about a, a hobby. Uh, others of us, we, we think about the past. We recall good memories. And others of us, we spend time dreaming about the future, the things that we hope to accomplish or experience. And certainly for some of us, uh, when, we, when our minds wander, we tend to wander into anxiety. You know, we, we, we worry when our minds are free to wander, and that's why we try to keep busy, because the busier we are, the less time we have to, uh, to feel anxious. Well, whatever it is, good or bad, we don't have to try to think about things like that. We just kind of naturally go there, right? But then there's another kind of thinking that's, that's more intentional. It's more diligent. Uh, and if we think about it, maybe you daydream about travel, or maybe you sit down and actually plan a trip and see there's a difference. You get the calendar out, you get out your budget, you get out a guidebook, or you do your internet research. It's much more focused. Uh, it's one thing to, uh, to dream about the future. It's another thing to sit down and make a plan and develop strategic goals, right? Uh, or even the, the, the question of anxiety. See, we talked about this last week. Uh, it's one thing to think anxious thoughts but it's another thing to apply intentionality and diligence to those thoughts. In fact, that's what Christians are meant to do. I'm, I'm going to remind us of what we looked at last week in Philippians 4, verse 6. Do you remember the, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but, and here's what he tells us to do, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so in this instance, we have a command. Take all your anxious thoughts to God in prayer and thanksgiving. That, there, there's a conscious exercise there. We're not daydreaming. We're focused. And then when we focus our anxieties, uh, in a sense, onto God, we bring them to God, there's a promise the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a peace that transcends our human thinking that will then guard our hearts and our minds. Now, as wonderful as that is, uh, I have often been guilty of misunderstanding the promise, of thinking that God's peace is some kind of dreamy feeling that helps us kind of float through the difficulties of life. That the peace of God is, is uh, thoughtless. It's almost like a daydream. It just kind of uh, mellows me out and, you know, kind of, kind of helps me float through. Rather than the peace of God being something more concrete and real. Um, and so I want us to see today the continuation of last week's scripture, what we just read, where Paul gives us a sense of the concreteness, the, the, uh, the solid nature of what God is actually calling us to. Uh, not some sort of dreamy existence, but uh, something that actually touches real life. 
uh, in, in specifically with the Philippians. Paul is writing to them in the face of, of adversity and uncertainty. And Paul is trying to show them, listen, God's not here to help you float through. God is calling you to a certain mind and heart, a certain way of life that incorporates your hands and your feet. This is real life that God is addressing and strengthening us for. There's a real foundation upon which to stand. And so take a look with me at Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9 today. This is, this is I, I was going to talk about this last week, honestly, but I just, I wanted to give so much more time and attention to the anxiety issue that we just had to hold off on this. But they're meant to go together. So Paul addresses anxiety, verses 6 and 7, and the peace of God. And then look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, in these two verses, Paul is telling us something very important. That the work of God in your life is not just defensive. That is to say, God doesn't just neutralize bad things to help us get through life. But God's work is also offensive. God is intentionally at work in your life and in mine to make something great out of us, to produce good and lasting fruit. It's not just def defense from the bad. God's getting us to the end zone here. There's good that's coming of all that God is, is at work in our lives to produce. And so we see in verse 8, there's, there's this list Paul gives us. It's got eight things on it, eight qualities that Paul says we ought to dwell on. And when he says dwell on these things, this is, this is quite the opposite of daydreaming. We don't drift into these things. This is serious, focused, diligent thought. Uh, as Paul says it in Romans 12, it's the renewing of your mind. And it is essential for the Christian. What do we fix our minds on, especially in the face of adversity and uncertainty? Well, there are two groups of thought with four ideals in each group. Those are not Paul's um, categories. Those are mine, just so you know. But these, these eight things, I think, break down nicely into two groups. Okay, So look at that first group with me in verse 8. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, dwell on these things. Uh, these qualities find their origin in the character of God and in his word, uh, not the shifting sands of cultural opinion. And let, let's take just a second to address that. Um, in our present cultural moment, everybody has an idea about what is true and, and honorable and right. Everybody has a, a sense of those ideals. 
but nobody can agree on what they are. The definitions change wildly over time. Uh, the truth about us, this is just humanity. This is not unique to America. It's just the truth. The things that one generation perhaps revered and admired, another generation will come along and try to cancel and destroy. That's just the way we operate. That's the way the passage of time changes things because we change along with it. And, and y'all, here's the truth. This is hard for us to comprehend, but even right now in the year 2020, whatever it is that we think about ourselves right now, how open-minded we are, how forward-thinking we are, how right we are in our assumptions, y'all, in a hundred years, they're going to scorn us and mock us and laugh at us at the things we believed and the ways that we acted because that's how humans are. There is no true and transcendent standard that holds us all together, at least not in our own way of being. And this is one of the places where the Christian has a unique privilege and a wonderful opportunity because we who have received the grace of Jesus, we don't live upon shifting sand. The way Jesus characterizes it at the end of Matthew 7, he says, if you will hear my words and observe them and live according to them, you will have a house built on the rock. No matter what happens to you, you will in the end stand firm. And Paul is in a sense echoing that idea here in what he tells us to fix our minds upon what is true and right and noble and pure, regardless of the prevailing opinion of our present culture, or any culture for that matter. There is for the Christian a, an, an eternally uh, true and right way of thinking and being, established by God from the beginning. There is something about uh, uh, our understanding of God and of life that is noble and pure and does not change regardless of circumstance or cultural opinion. And so, if, if we could take that first category, truth, uh, tr what's true, honorable, right, and pure, and narrow it down to one central application, uh, I would say this. How do we dwell on those things? Truth, nobility, righteousness, and purity. By being deeply committed to the Bible. Because that's what Jesus said. Hear my words and obey them and you'll be built on the rock. So when we are committed to the Bible, um, we're, we're, we're establishing ourselves on that solid ground. And I, there's a, a, a need for me to confess something that I often fall into, and, and I think it's, it's helpful to just say it for all of us. Uh, owning a Bible and believing the Bible is not the same as being committed to the Bible, uh, as continually coming to the Scripture, uh, to to be fed, to to grow, uh, to be devoted to God according to His Word. The fact that I have the Bible on my shelf and I believe what it says is not the same as what Paul is commanding us to do here in verse eight. He's calling us to dwell on what is true and right and noble and pure, and so. Think about this. This I'm going to give you a couple of, of scriptures that I think not only support this, but are, are incredibly encouraging and enriching. In Psalm 1, the first psalm, there is a blessed man 
being spoken of. And the reason he's blessed is because his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in God's law, he meditates day and night. Therefore, he is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In Psalm 19, David says, God's word restores the soul, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes. Therefore, the words of God are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Isn't that a great image? Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're commanded, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. See, the blessing of dwelling on God's word is that through the word we come to know God and to be shaped by God. Dwelling results in shaping, focusing our hearts and minds on what is true and noble and right and pure. In this case, the Word of God will result in transformation. Uh, here's, here's an example that I often come back to just in my own thoughts. I'm sure I've shared this with the church before. Um, but it's very practical for me, and that's why I like it. When I, was a, when I first became a Christian... 16, 17 years old. Um, one of the first things I recall God doing in my life, he dealt with my speech, specifically cursing and mean-spirited talk. That was a problem in my life. And I knew it was wrong. I already knew it was wrong. But it didn't stop me. Knowing that it was wrong didn't stop me, frankly, because it was one of the ways that I sought acceptance from my peers. So the, the, the wrongness of it was of little concern to me as long as it you know, helped me accomplish acceptance. That's at least how my teenage mind thought. But now, see, now as a follower of Jesus, looking into his word, I became aware of something much deeper, much greater than my assumptions. Not just it's wrong, but listen to this. This is one of the scriptures I remember coming to as a teenager. Ephesians chapter 4 changed my life, continues to change my life where Paul says in Ephesians 4, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, or building up, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, for the first time in my life, I became aware of what's really at stake in my speech. My words can build up. My words can actually communicate God's grace. Or, of course, they can do the opposite. And so often that's what they were doing. They were doing the opposite of building up and communicating grace. My words can please God, Paul says, or I can grieve the Holy Spirit by whom I was sealed for the day of redemption. And y'all, that sticks with me still. That Paul is affirming, he's not just saying, stop it, it's bad. He's reminding us of who we are and what we have. The Holy Spirit has sealed me for the day of redemption. God has given me his eternal grace and glory as a free gift. 
What on earth am I doing speaking in such demeaning and God-grieving ways? See, I, cussing's wrong. I knew that already. But only when I began to set my mind on what was true and honorable and right and pure was I brought to repentance. Did I recognize that, that God was calling me to something truer and better than the life I was living? And y'all, still to this day, when I sin in my speech, I'm drawn back to that same scripture because that's where my heart is meant to dwell. Uh, God is still shaping me on this. I need him continually. Maybe more than ever, I need him to shape me on this. But it only comes through the dwelling, through the fixation. If left to myself, if my mind is left to wander, I never wander into truth and righteousness. It requires uh, focus, or as Paul says, dwelling. Uh, we've got to diligently zero in. Now, I want you to notice the second category. We just saw truth, nobility, righteousness, and purity. Uh, also in verse 8, though, there's a what I, what I put into a second category. Again, Paul doesn't do that, so forgive me. But um, it, I think it's helpful for us to look at it maybe like this. That second category. Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute or admirable, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Uh, now, these four come across maybe a little softer, maybe a little more emotional, uh, perhaps, than the first four. Um, it might help us to think of the, the, the two groups like this. Um, those first four characteristics are more about God's character. They, they have maybe a little to do more with um, righteousness, morality, whereas these latter four kind of come across more like God's gifts to us. Um, now, don't take that rigidly, of course, but I want you to think about it. Uh, whatever is lovely and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. You know, God, God is the author of all that is true and right, period. No dispute. But you know, God is also the author of all that is beautiful and praiseworthy. God is not only a father to be obeyed, he is also a father to be enjoyed. Uh, sometimes I wonder this, why in the world did God make so many lovely things? Why is the world and the universe so so? stunningly beautiful and magnificent beyond our comprehension? Why does food taste so delicious? Uh, why is friendship so meaningful? Why is good music so beautiful and moving? Uh, for me, the question is, it, why didn't God just make everything functional and leave it at that? Well, one answer, at least, is that God himself is lovely and joyful and delightful. It's, it's fundamental to his own nature that he is a, a God who is creative and thoughtful, and he delights to, to bring about 
beauty and goodness, and then to make us a part of that. And so, y'all, for the Christian to dwell on whatever is lovely and excellent and praiseworthy, that's for us, that's ultimately for us to dwell on the goodness of God, God who creates those things, even though he didn't have to. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, the Christian lives a life of serious happiness. Because to know God is to know truth and righteousness and beauty and praise. Right? It's not either or, it's both and. To follow Jesus means we grieve our sins but we also delight in his grace. We enjoy his mercy. It's both and, not either or. See, we're meant to be seriously happy people because we live with our minds fixed on God, God who is true and righteous and pure, God who is lovely and excellent and worthy of praise. Those are not separate parts of his character. That's just who he is in totality, and we're meant to dwell on him. And so one last thing on this. As Paul speaks about our thoughts, our thoughts, that is very naturally a personal and private exercise. The things I dwell on are my, my that's my mind, that's my time, that's my space, uh, my thoughts. But you know, the dwelling on the things of God that Paul is talking about is meant to be the larger ministry of the church. He's talking to the church, not just to individuals, but he's talking plurally to all of us, that we are meant to dwell on certain things uh, as a corporate body, the church together, not just Kyle individually and specifically. Uh, Colossians 3 gives a great expression of this. This is Colossians 3.15. Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, that's the church, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, hearts plural, to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Those commands are given to individuals, but they're given for the greater purpose of the body of Christ. The dwelling that we're doing here, as, as he says it in Colossians 3, the word of Christ richly dwells within you, therefore encourage, teach, admonish, sing, do it together. It's not meant to be personal and private only. The outcome of this dwelling in verse 8 is healthy, grateful, worshiping church. It's for all of us to share together. So when God calls us to dwell, to think, to focus, to fixate, uh, yes, that applies to us personally. Of course it does but it's also intended for the building up of the body of Christ in love. My dwelling on God is meant to be a blessing to you and vice versa. 
um, because we're not called to live individually for God only, but collectively. Um, and, and this is how Paul is, is able to move from thinking to action so naturally that our dwelling, our thoughts, are, are not just internally uh, established, but they change, they affect, they shape how we live. Look at verse 9, Philippians 4, verse 9. He says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. and The God of peace will be with you. Uh, Paul does this often. He's done it multiple times already in Philippians. He holds himself up as a model. He holds himself up as someone to be imitated, which is a dangerous thing to do, right? Uh, I, I don't know very many people who would consciously put themselves out there like this. Paul's putting himself out there. And it could be an arrogant thing. That's one of the reasons we wouldn't do it, is because it would come across as, as very arrogant and maybe even self-serving. But we always recognize that for Paul, Jesus is the hero. Paul's not holding himself up as the hero. Paul called himself the least of all the apostles, the chief of all sinners. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the goal. Paul wants these people to ultimately to follow Jesus supremely and wholeheartedly. Uh, we, we see that in, in chapter 3. Re remember what Paul says in chapter 3. We saw it a few weeks ago. He says, uh, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I haven't arrived at the goal. I haven't become perfect. I haven't reached the resurrection yet. But one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, therefore, let us all have this same attitude together. So Paul is not painting himself as the goal here or the hero. He's made it clear that Jesus is the bullseye. But he is saying, without any reservation, he's saying, I want y'all to imitate my mindset here. I am, I have made it my, my chief aim in life to pursue Jesus. And so pursue Jesus the way I pursue Jesus. Not because I've arrived. He, he tells us that. I'm not perfect. But if you follow me, if you do what I do, you're going to end up in a good spot because I'm following Jesus with every fiber of my being. That's why he says, the things you have heard from me, seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's no, there's no reason really to read too much into this, but I do think it's fascinating how Paul plays with the phrases. We, we looked earlier, toward the beginning, we looked at, at Philippians 4, 7, when we bring our anxieties to God in prayer, with thanksgiving, the peace of God will be with us. Now in verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 9, when Paul says, as we live out our faith, the God of peace will be with us. The peace of God, verse 7, the God of peace, verse 9. Now, I don't think there's any hidden meaning in all of that, but I do think it's an awesome reminder God's blessings are a product of God's nature, his heart, 
his character. Why do we get God's peace? Because he is the God of peace. It's who he is. We talked about this last week. When we come to God in our anxiety, when we pray to him to depend on him, when we thank him to display our trust in him, what do we get? Well, ultimately, we get God. We don't just get something from God, but we get God himself. We get the, the most precious gift there is. We get relationship with Christ, and therefore we have peace. And then Paul reiterates that using the same phrase, only in reverse. Live for, for Christ. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You will have God. Y'all, that is such a, a massive shift in our thinking, in my thinking, that I don't just need what God can give me, but I need God. And that's, that ought to be my chief aim and desire. And really, that's what Paul's calling us to here in, the, in these two verses today, uh, making the connection between verses 8 and 9. And thankfully, it's an easy one. What we dwell on transforms how we live. What we dwell on, what we fix our minds on, directs our path. It directs our hands and feet. And that's really true in anything. I mean, in any area of life, that's true. But it's certainly true in our relationship uh, with the Lord. To dwell on the things of God uh, will certainly result in practicing the things of God, living them out. But y'all, look... As we close, can we make a final brief application? Uh, it is brief, I promise. When the Apostle Paul says we should dwell on the things of God, um, it's easy for me to, to generalize that, to make that too general. The things of God. Well, golly, that's, there's, a lot, there's a lot in that. I mean, I, and, I, and I tend to, uh, to get so broad in my thinking that I, I become easily distracted. Uh, sometimes I struggle to focus when I pray. Sometimes I pray so aimlessly that I just lose my prayer halfway through. I don't even remember what I was saying, right? I'm sure that happens to all of us to some degree. The things of God, that there's so much to think on and, and dwell on and, and consider, right? It's easy to lose focus. And so the command in verse 8, whatever things are true and, and noble and right and pure and lovely and excellent and worthy of praise. Like, that, that's a long list. That can feel overwhelming. I'm supposed to think about all that stuff all the time? But it may help us to remember this. God's goodness, God's righteousness, God's beauty, God's truth, all of that has a focal point. And the focus is Jesus. In Hebrews 1, we're told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Every good thing there is to know about God is, it finds its manifestation in Jesus Christ. And so, y'all, what makes us Christians is not that we believe in God and worship God generally. What makes us Christians is that we trust and love Jesus specifically. It is the grace of Christ that saves us. And so my encouragement today, I think, I think this is what the Apostle Paul would say, and of course he does say it in other places, that when we dwell on the things of God, 
the truth, the purity, the righteousness, the loveliness of God. What we're meant to do, what we're really doing, is we're looking dead center at the person of Jesus. The scripture tells us this. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our purification from sin. Jesus is all that is lovely and noble and praiseworthy. He's the personification of all of these things. The Son of God who came for us. And, and see, that's why when Paul talks about his own life, this is pulling from chapter 3 again. Remember this great verse? Paul says, I lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I spend my life to know, love, follow, honor, obey, worship, enjoy Christ, the one who has laid hold of me. And so there's nothing more precious, there's nothing more life-changing than for us to fix our minds and our hearts on Jesus Christ, the one who loved us, the one who gave himself for us. So if, if the scripture today feels overwhelming, this long list of massive things, let's remember that, that all of those things find their ultimate source, their ultimate um, focus in the Lord Jesus Christ. To look to him, to know him, to love him, to follow him. That is the goal of life. And what a joy it is for us as Christians. With all the things we can daydream about, all the things we can fix our minds on, we have the privilege, the special privilege, each and every moment, to turn our thoughts, our minds, our hearts, our affections, that we might dwell on Jesus Christ. And by his grace, we might be shaped, transformed, to be more and more like him. What an awesome thing we've been given. Let's pray that God would bring it to our hearts that we might live it out. Um, Father, thank you this day, today, that you are calling us to yourself. Lord, we can say it with, with perfect confidence that right now, Lord, you are calling us into fellowship with your son, Jesus. You are calling us, Lord, into greater love, greater trust, greater affection, greater dependence, greater joy. And that's why we are called to dwell on the good things of our Savior. That's why we're called to practice these things. Because our whole life is now wrapped up in the, the, the life of the one who came for us. Lord, help us to have this, this heart that Paul so often spoke of glowingly. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He, he was dwelling always on what is true and right and pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy and noble and admirable. Lord, you are the source of all that is good. So Lord, draw our minds to you and help us, Lord, to focus, to fixate on you. There is so much to distract us. There is so much 
uh, even, even perhaps a great many good things in our lives, but that are not meant to be ultimate for us. They are good, but they are not you. They may be gifts from your hand, Lord, but it's not the same as seeking your face and delighting in you. And so, Father, don't for us, don't allow anything um, apart from Jesus Christ to be our true delight, our true uh, fixation and focus. But let everything else take its place around him. And, Lord, give us the joy of that to perpetually be thinking about and, and dwelling on and, and delighting in and, uh, and following after our Savior. Uh, Father, show us how this would apply to every single area of our lives. There's nothing, Lord, that you leave untouched and unaddressed. And so, Lord, help us today that we might follow you with, uh, with eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, and Lord, let it be for us uh, a source of constant praise. And thank you, Lord, that, that you would include that in today's scripture. Whatever is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And Lord, we have so much to praise you for. So we thank you and we ask your mercy uh, to be rich upon us uh, today as those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ in faith. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.